This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, Counterspin, The Young Turks, The Progressive, The Bugle, The Tom Hartman Program, and The Show. And a note for our more sensitive listeners, anyone afraid of heights or bad metaphors may wish to avoid this program. Okay, your next quote is from Mr. Burns on The Simpsons. Think of the economy as a car, and the rich man is the driver. If you don't give the driver all the money, he'll drive you over a cliff. It's just common sense. Mr. Burns was explaining what? The fiscal cliff. The fiscal cliff, yes, of course. Here we are again, talking about the fiscal cliff. Another week, another seven days, rushing over the cliff. Everybody seems to be scared of it, but apparently we're all willing to go over it, so each side can prove how confident they are in their positions. It's not a fiscal cliff, it's a fiscal trust fall. But this week, the crisis started to seem different. It seems different from all the other crises we've had for the, f- for, for the last few years. It's, it's a brand new Obama. He's actually standing his ground. The Republicans aren't used to it. Every time the GOP makes a demand, Obama says no. And they're like, excuse me, we didn't understand. No? Is that like some sort of Kenyan word? We don't... What does that mean? Why, why are we always coming up with stuff to get scared of? Is there no, like nothing better to do? It was like you know, Y2K than why this? It's always, I'm always fearing something big is going to happen. Well, there's a there's a there's a huge industrial media complex that needs something to be upset about. Yeah, I oh, mean, absolutely. Can you imagine, like, say, Chris Matthews going, everything's fine, everything's terrific. We're going to talk about how terrific it is right after this. Yes, exactly. We've got some puppies to look at. <laughs> And some people who are satisfied with their lives. <laughs> Stay tuned. I mean, it's not going to work, right? I would, I would love that because it would take away from my other anxieties that I have. Then I, then I could be like, oh, great. Then the world is okay. Now I can worry about my 22-month-old peeing on the rug because that's what she does, and that makes me nervous. You know, you can diaper them. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I watch MSNBC. Uh, I think that they have never left that studio. That's what I think. Yeah, they all live there. They do, because they, I saw, I swear to you, the other day, I saw Andrea Mitchell. Oh, I didn't even know she had a show, but she did. She had the Andrea Mitchell show or something. And she said, it's me, Andrea Mitchell. Uh, they, they keep interviewing each other. She goes, it's me, Andrea Mitchell, at the Andrea Mitchell show. And thank you for joining me, Andrea Mitchell. And then she says, you know, I got, uh, you know, I don't know, Tracy Jackson's going to be here in a minute. And then split screen, there's Tracy Jackson. Well, you know, you're going to enjoy the Tracy Jackson show. Tracy Jackson, I'm going to turn it over to you any second now. I think Tracy Jackson. Tracy Jackson goes, thank you for joining me on the Tracy Jackson show. This is going to be fantastic. My first guest today is Andrew Mitchell. (laughs) And you think, I love the idea that they all do their shows and then they like, they go to sleep. They get into their jammies and it's like, it's like, good night, Chris. Good night, Rachel. I mean, (laughs) are we going to wake up? We'll find out after this. (laughs) What drives a man to lock his doors and bar his windows tight To leave his lights on timers so his house appears so bright A temper fence around his door and cameras on the walls A fortress so secure that he can hardly get in at all Fear is a villain when he grips you late at night He'll catch you when your back is turned, he's watching you
According to media mythology on the dreaded fiscal cliff, we're facing imminent danger requiring deeply cutting spending, closing tax loopholes, and increasing government revenues. But one way to do the latter is usually missing from the conversation, a small tax on financial transactions, otherwise known as a speculation tax or a Robin Hood tax. Proponents say such a speculation tax could bring in more than $300 billion every year, and it could serve as a check on some of the riskier forms of high-frequency, high-volume trading. But the Robin Hood tax doesn't play a significant role in media discussions of revenue solutions. One exception was a Washington Post op-ed on December 2nd by activist Ralph Nader, who wrote that, quote, both sides are unwilling to consider a minuscule tax on financial transactions that could be a major source of income, close quote. Perhaps taking its cues from the political camps, the nation's press is also ignoring the idea. But this hasn't always been the case. Several major newspapers, like the Boston Globe, the New York Times, and USA Today, have voiced editorial support for the tax idea in the past. The speculation tax is understandably unpopular among the fix-the-debt CEOs who have become central to discussions of the budget and who, incidentally, bankroll political careers. So then it's understandable that politicians aren't eager to talk about any of this. But what's the media's excuse? Robin Hood, Robin Hood, riding through the glen. Robin Hood, Robin Hood, with his band of men. Feared by the bad, loved by the good. Robin Hood, Robin Hood, Robin Hood. He called the greatest archers to a tavern on the green. They vowed to help the people of the king. They handled all the trouble on the English country scene and still found plenty of time to sing. Politico has an interesting article about how Harry Reid and John Boehner and President Obama interacted throughout this whole uh, negotiations on the fiscal cliff. And uh, there's many insights in there. First off is how much President Obama conceded because uh, the Senate Democrats, apparently led by Harry Reid, of course, hated the deal. They thought Obama gave away the store. Let me give you a quote. Reid saw an offer that Obama had considered pitching to McConnell on Sunday, which included provisions opposed by Senate Democrats. The majority leader crumpled up the document and tossed it into the burning fireplace of his Capitol office. So there's Harry Reid, who's no lion, as we've continually told you. Not like he's some sort of big fighter. He looks at the offer from the White House and goes, Jesus, how much are you going to give the Republicans? Crumples it up and throws it in the fire. Says, I, I can't go there. Why does Obama keep doing this? Because he wants to. He wants to cut Social Security. Did you see the story in the middle of the week where the Republicans saying that chain CPI offer that President Obama gave us to cut Social Security by reining in the cost of living, basically? We can't take it. If we took it, it might cost us tremendous political damage. The Republicans are embarrassed to take the offer that Obama's giving them on Social Security. Obama wants to cut Social Security so badly, the Republicans won't even take it. Oh, come on, man. When are you going to wake up and realize <laughs> and see what Obama's got cooking, what, what the Barack's got cooking for you? And it ain't anything progressive, I can tell you that for sure. So, now... Um, they say in the political article that uh, despite the ugly process and bruised relations 
through all these tough fighting. The West Wing thinks it won big. I love that. I think that's hilarious. <laughs> Norquist is all over TV bragging about how he got 84% of what he wants in terms of tax revenue, and he's right on the numbers, right? Uh, and the knuckleheads at the West Wing are like, <laughs> yeah, we got him. But they did, because they got what they wanted. That's what they wanted all along. But now, here's the really interesting part. Apparently, Obama told uh, Boehner that this is how he saw these negotiations. He said, there were two doors the two parties could walk through. Obama told Boehner and other top aides in the office that day. Door number one led to a bipartisan agreement, and they would all be hailed as heroes. Obama said, although he added, that liberal economists like Paul Krugman would claim I've been fleeced again. Door number two, on the other hand, led to an impasse and a daunting set of consequences, high interest rates, a credit downgrade, and a worldwide recession. Now, why do I give you that quote? Because it gives you a mindset into Obama. He thinks if we have a deal, no matter what's in the deal, we will be considered bipartisan heroes. Bang, that's it. That's exactly what Obama thinks. I got a deal. I'm a hero in Washington. They call me bipartisan. I'm above partisanship. That's exactly it. So, number two, he already tells you there, whatever I'm going to give you, it's going to be so good that progressives like Paul Krugman is going to, are going to say I got robbed. He knows he's being robbed, and he's doing it anyway. He needs that pat on the back. Give me the bipartisan hero back pat. Give it to me, give it to me. That's what his real motivation is. And door number two, he says, is, oh my God, the markets will melt down. The markets, I pray to you markets. I bow to you markets. We can't have the markets melt down. We can't have that happen. So we can't have door number two under any circumstance. You offer me the crappiest deal in the world, I'm going to take it because I can't go to door number two. <laughs> if this is his idea of negotiation, it is a horrible tactic, horrible negotiations. Okay, so then we have the fake drama about the fighting. Now, you know how Reid uh, came out and said that uh, Boehner was being dictatorial in the House. So apparently Boehner sees Harry Reid in the Capitol Hill, uh, and he says, uh, according to Politico, Boehner to Reid, go fuck yourself. <gasps> Reid was startled, and he said, what are you talking about? And then Boehner repeated, go fuck yourself. <laughs> Boehner then later bragged to other Republicans about how he told Reid to do that. Well, if they're fighting, there must be two real different sides. The Democrats and Republicans aren't actually trying to give giant tax cuts to the rich and take it from the middle class. Look at this. They told them to go fuck themselves. It must be real. It must be. Oh, man, there are bruised egos here. I'll tell you, things are not going well. And then here comes my favorite part to show you that, in fact, the Democrats and Republicans are totally working together. In a phone call, uh, December 21st. Boehner told Obama that his game plan all along was to pass the bill setting the $1 million threshold, that was his big gambit, if you remember, send it to the Senate to drop it down to $500,000 or so, and ship it back to the House for approval. So he's saying, look, I'm doing this plan B. And he told Obama. And he said, and I don't really expect it to pass the Senate, I expect him to knock it down to $500,000. Which, by the way, was the final deal. He said, around $500,000, and it got knocked down to $450,000. So Boehner actually got his secret plan. But one more part of this that's important. Obama, perplexed by the secret strategy, asked Boehner whether he had shared it with Reid or House Minority Leader Nancy Pelosi, suggesting that they might have helped him. Boehner said he had not. Do you understand? Obama says to Boehner, 
Hey, you idiot. That's the deal we want to do anyway. What's the matter with you? We totally agree with you. Yeah, just instead of keeping it secret, you share it. And the Democrats behind closed doors will work with the Republicans to get the deal that we both want anyway. What are you going out there and trying to do this on your own for? Let the Democrats help you. You want the taxes to be around $500,000? You know, tax cuts for everybody underneath that? That's what we want. Because a lot of our donors are between two hundred and fifty and five hundred thousand. You want to cut the capital gains and estate tax and dividend tax and carried interest? That's what our big donors want too. What are you going around making secret plans for? If you're going to do a secret plan, do it with the Democrats. We're trying to help you. That's what you haven't been understanding the whole time, John Maynard. And that's what the media never tells you. And that's what you missed if 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 you weren't getting your news online about this whole process. There is no fight. Secretly, they all agree on the same exact thing because they're all paid by, relatively speaking, the same exact donors. It might be a, a person X and person B over there, but the bottom line is they have the same goal. And especially in the state tax. And there were many articles written about that saying the Democrats wanted the state tax lower too because there were important people that the party had to answer to who cared about that estate tax the large donors. Of course! That's how this game is played. Here at Best of the Left, supporting the good works of others is our entire reason for existence. Since the beginning of 2006, I've been making this show to highlight what I consider to be some of the best of the truly liberal media. Now I'm working on several ways to promote the best progressive activism around. Ruminate for a moment on whether you enjoy this show or consider its goals to be worthwhile, and if you do, please consider supporting this work by becoming a member for as little as $5 a month or even $55 a year at the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. It's the donations of members that allow the show to continue and continue to improve. Thanks so much for your support. President Obama managed to hand glide over the fiscal cliff and was fortunate that a progressive wind blew him back to safety. Because of pressure from his base, Obama resisted his own temptation to cut back on Social Security. Because of pressure from his base, he succeeded in raising taxes on the rich. And because of pressure from his base, he extended crucial programs that helped the needy, like unemployment insurance and the unearned income tax credit. It wasn't a perfect deal. As Robert Reich and others have pointed out, it left the president and the country in a potential hostage-taking situation in just a matter of months, as it did nothing to lift the debt ceiling. But I was frankly surprised that Obama didn't give more ground since he'd signaled a willingness to do so. I wasn't surprised, though, that the super-rich got a big part of what they really wanted, which is a huge break on the estate tax. If there hadn't been any deal, the wealthiest Americans would have been able to give their heirs only a million dollars tax-free. Now they'll be able to give their heirs $5 million tax-free, as they were able to last year. That's one Bush tax cut for the super-rich that survived virtually intact. And that's the one they really cared about. But on balance, the agreement was a net plus, with Obama starting the year off right. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it.
America goes cliff diving! And, well, Andy, at midnight on New Year's Eve, America technically went off the fiscal cliff, majestically Thelma and Louising itself over the edge of basic human reason. <laughs> uh, sadly, it wasn't a full economic bungee jump, as an agreement was in place hours before the deadline. It's just that they didn't then vote on that agreement because... They're arseholes, Andy. That's <laughs> the only reasonable explanation I could come up with. I looked at the timeline of negotiations, I crunched the numbers, and that seemed like the only plausible justification for not voting. Sure, we could vote on this agreement that we've finally reached. There's just one problem. I am an arsehole, <laughs> uh, which is really going to get in the way of us getting this done in time. I'd apologise, but I'm not going to because, you know, I'm an arsehole. <laughs> well, John, this is... Surely part of America. You know, it's it's written into the Constitution that no American should ever allow the common good to interfere with partisan grandstanding or being an arsehole. So, I mean, yeah. you can't argue with this, John. If it was valid 225 years ago, it is valid today. Instead, they voted two days later, and the vote passed both houses, meaning that, although America technically went off the cliff, it somehow managed to snag its underpants on a branch on the way down, hung there for a day or so, and then managed to scramble its way back up. <laughs> the discussions went right up to the wire. The president was forced to come back early from his vacation in Hawaii, as were the rest of the leaders of both parties, all complaining about being forced to come back, <laughs> as if anyone but themselves had put them in this position. <laughs> and the run-up to the deal was, to put it mildly, F***ing tense. At one point on Friday, things got so heated that John Boehner, Speaker of the House, reportedly told Harry Reid to go f*** himself. <laughs> they were apparently in the White House lobby, just outside the Oval Office, and with no agreement in sight, multiple sources reported that Boehner apparently pointed at Reid and said, go f*** yourself. <laughs> Harry Reid then said, what are you talking about? Which is, you know, clearly not the greatest comeback. To which Boehner <laughs> replied... Yeah, exactly. To which Boehner replied again... Go f*** yourself! I think, unfortunately, you just have to give that snaps battle to Boehner, I'm afraid. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, uh, that is basically just, uh, you know, a condensed concentration of American politics. Yeah, well, it, it, do, it does really go to show the depth to which the tone of the political discussion in America has sunk, Andy, because that was some low linguistic limbo dancing he was performing. And Harry Reid himself was not immune to throwing infantile tantrums, because when the White House sent him a list of suggested concessions for the next offer to Republicans, Reid apparently read them, crumpled up the paper, and then threw it into a fire. <laughs> in, into a fire? Who the f*** does Harry Reid think he is, Andy? Does he think he's in Lord of the Rings? There is only one way to destroy this offer, and that is to toss it into the fires of eternal doom. <laughs> or... You could just say no, Harry. Because <laughs> Harry Reid clearly thinks he's a some kind of Tolkien character, Andy, in a state of constant war with conservative orcs. And I'm not saying that he doesn't have a slightly hobbit-like appearance. I don't think anyone would be that surprised if it turned out that Harry Reid lived in a tiny house in a hillside with a giant wizard. <laughs> but none of that justifies him throwing things into a fire. Because that is unearned drama, Andy. If he was a naturally flamboyant character, then fine. Throw things into fires. <laughs> but he is possibly, in fact, definitely, one of the most boring human beings currently <laughs> breathing on Earth. So he doesn't get to throw anything into a fire. He just gets to file things carefully in his no-pile. <laughs> So the Democrats, viewed by many Republicans as essentially the political wing of Al-Qaeda, and the Republicans did finally reach this deal. But, John, was it a deal that 
hid the problem under the carpet, or was it more that <laughs> they were just grinding the problem into the carpet, partly because there are already so many problems under the carpet already that the carpet is only a few inches from the ceiling? I think they just paint problems to look like carpets now, Andy. <laughs> it's much easier. Then you can leave the carpet exactly where it is. So having narrowly avoided this uh, plummeting off this fiscal cliff, America is now nervously canneveling its way over a fiscal Grand Canyon with its fingers crossed, hoping that it can somehow crash on the other side without too many fatal injuries or broken limbs, or failing that, that someone can find a cure for gravity before it plummets to its doom. Uh, Obama uh, has said that he hoped after this that future negotiations will entail, quotes, less drama, a little bit less brinkmanship, and not scare the heck out of folks quite so much. <laughs> now, I'm not American, John, but that to me seems like probably the most unpatriotic thing a president has said since Ulysses S. Grant was overheard saying that he preferred a good camembert to a slice of Monterey Jack. That is what American <laughs> democracy is all about, John. And not just American democracy, but all democracy. Needlessly contrived drama, irresponsible brinkmanship, and scaring the shit out of people so they let you get on with defusing the poisonous snake you've just bought, annoyed and waggled in their faces. <laughs> And Republican Lou Barletta told the Washington Post, I don't know if playing chicken with the American people at this point is in the best interest of the people. <laughs> well, I guess the thing to do, John, if you don't know something like that, is to find out by testing it. You cannot have that uncertainty hanging over politics and hanging over the people of America. You need to play the chicken, see what happens, and work out whether or not it is in the best interest of the people, and more importantly, whether or not you, as a politician, give a shit either way. <laughs> so, what was the agreement? Well, in short, it seems to have pissed everyone off. The agreement seems to be essentially, let's find some almost impossibly intricate balance of trade-offs that will infuriate literally everyone involved in this negotiation. Because it seems that everyone has walked away from this angry, Andy, and I don't know how that's even physically possible. In short, the Bush-era tax cuts have been uh, kept for everyone earning $400,000 or less, and taxes will go up on couples earning $450,000 or more. Or at least they should go up until various tax accountants start limbering up for some fiscal yoga, twisting deductions into what look like legally impossible positions before walking away having somehow paid even less than before. <laughs> uh, the, the Democrats at least won tax increases on the wealthiest Americans. In return, the Republicans managed to get the administration to agree to a just a two-month extension of the sequester, uh, uh, automatic cuts to defence spending and domestic programmes that were supposed to be triggered January the 1st. And all this, essentially, sets up another colossal showdown in just eight weeks. What the f*** is wrong with these people, Andy? <laughs> is it any wonder that Congress has a lower public approval rating than most serial killers? <laughs> Well, yes, John, as you said, to get to this deal, there was more horse trading than at a French food market. And the only people <laughs> who seemed pleased with this in the end were the global markets, uh, which rallied strongly after the deal was reached. Oh, but, good. as we Thank know, John, global markets, as recent history and not so recent history has proved time and again, are platinum-grade shysters. Amoral <laughs> dickbags with a vacuum for a soul whose relationship with ethics is similar to the relationship between polar bears and penguins. They have no idea that they exist, but if they did, they would eat them. Then they would vomit them up <laughs> and eat them again before belching and saying, Ah, oh, I went down a treat. After the deal was reached, both sides posed for the commemorative photographs as if they had nice new Christmas scarves that they'd given each other around their necks, scarves that looked suspiciously like boa constrictors. And I guess time will tell 
whether this deal has put the promise into compromise or the uh into fudge. <laughs> will it solve the problem? Or will it prove the economic equivalent of having a car with severed brake cables and fixing it by installing a louder sound system so that you can't hear the other cars honking at you as you plummet down a hill? Will it prove to be a great escape? Or will it be the equivalent of zebras having just avoided a hungry pack of lions by hiding in an abattoir in pantomime cow outfits? <laughs> will it be a success? Too early to say. Was Captain Scott's expedition to avoid suffering from heat stroke in 1912 a success? Well, of sorts. It was, but at some cost. And is it a short-term fix? There's been a problem with short-term fixes throughout history, ever since dinosaurs tried to see off the rising threat of Raquel Welsh in a bikini by calling in an asteroid strike. I guess it's just... it's just too early to say. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. One of the biggest issues in the coverage of the slow march towards the so-called fiscal cliff was whether to let the Bush tax cuts expire for the top 2%, an income cutoff of around $250,000 for a couple. On Meet the Press on December 30th, NBC veteran Tom Brokaw made the case that that only sounds like a lot of money. A lot of people don't realize that in the large urban and suburban areas of America, $250,000 doesn't make you rich. You've got two kids in college at $60,000. If you're a boomer, you may have a dependent parent of some kind, you're spending another $20,000, $25,000 on. So we have to have the definition of what is the middle class. Well, okay. A lot of people would probably welcome the opportunity to struggle to get by on a mere $250,000. There's a notion among some pundits that people in big cities like New York make that kind of money. But actually, very few New Yorkers make $250,000, at most about 6% of households. And of course, an increase in the marginal tax rate at that level means you'd pay additional taxes only on your income above that amount. So Tom Brokaw's middle-class wealthy family would be just fine. That wasn't Tom Brokaw's only problem with how the Cliff deal was playing out. He wanted to see Barack Obama do more to cut Social Security and Medicare benefits. As Brokaw put it, Obama, quote, could help himself a lot if he were tougher on the AARP, close quote. He went on to cite the usual talking points about how people are living longer so we can raise the retirement age. To Brokaw, Obama should be working hard to sell this idea to the public after winning the election. That's an odd notion for sure, to push through policies that most people don't want as a way of thanking them for their votes. 
It's not as if Obama hasn't brought up reducing Social Security benefits. But Brokaw's not alone in champing at the bit for cuts in programs that help people. Washington Post columnist David Ignatius wrote a column on January 3rd lamenting the fact that Obama failed to come up with, quote, a real strategy for cutting the deficit and the entitlement programs that drive it, close quote. And that would be perhaps the zillionth time a pundit has declared falsely that Social Security is part of the deficit problem and that, therefore, the responsible thing to do is to cut people's benefits. No matter how often inflicting unnecessary pain on those who can least afford it is presented as the view of sensible centrists and middle-of-the-road journalists, it remains a very radical proposition. It isn't that media don't believe there might be victims of the fiscal cliff-related changes. They just appear to define the term differently. In a December 28th segment, for example, CBS Evening News showcased the fears faced by people who have inherited land worth millions of dollars. A Napa Valley vineyard owner, it seems, has 120 acres. But in 1972, he sold land to pay estate taxes after his grandfather's death. This was when, viewers learn, estate taxes were at an all-time high of 77%. So what's relevant about this? Well, the couple who inherited the land's plans to hand it over to their children would be ruined if the estate tax rose from 35 to 55% on estates worth over $1 million. It's one thing to focus attention on a tax paid by a tiny sliver of the population. 0.29% of estates would face any tax at all in 2013, according to the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. But having made that choice, CBS might have tipped to viewers that there was never a chance the estate tax was going to go to 55% with a $1 million exemption, since not even Democrats were pushing for anything like that or that the estate tax has been falling since 2001, and, even more important, the amount exempted from the tax has increased. As of last year, it's $5 million a person, an amount that is, by the way, indexed for inflation, so it will rise over time, unlike, say, the minimum wage that many non-vineyard owners get by on. My wealth comes to me Apparently we had a bit of a deal that happened recently. Hmm. Funny how this deal happened right after the new year when the Republicans can say, hey, you know what? Uh, we didn't vote for tax increases. The tax cuts had already expired. We voted to actually reduce taxes, which is actually totally true. I'll get back to that in a second. But before the markets opened on Wednesday morning. You wouldn't want to upset the markets. Now, a lot of the newspapers and outlets are actually getting this completely wrong. Uh, let me give you two examples. Politico says, quote, 
a president fresh off a strong re-election victory tested and ultimately broke the Republican Party's fidelity to its tax cuts only governing philosophy. Well, he broke them. He broke them. Here's the only problem. He got on the issue of tax cuts, which is what Politico is talking about, no concessions from the Republicans. You might be saying, wait a minute, I just watched TV all day. You're talking about, oh, you're broken and concession. No, 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 no. The tax cuts had already expired. So what they voted on was a new round of tax cuts. In fact, that round of tax cuts that applied to 99% of the people in the country, thereby basically saying that we are continuing to push tax cuts for 99% of the country, thanks to not a Republican president, Democratic president, Barack Obama, agreeing with the Republicans, hey, yeah, you know what? We should actually do gigantic tax cuts again. Now, uh, New York Times also gets it wrong. They say, Mr. Obama succeeded in forcing Senate Republicans to raise the top income tax rate to 39.6% from 35% despite their adamant opposition, although he agreed to apply that to household income above $450,000 instead of $250,000. He also won an increase in taxes on wealthy estates to 40% from 35%, though it was not as high as liberals wanted. Now that's just not true. He didn't get those concessions. So for example, the estate tax did not go from 35 to 40%. Hey, look at that, Obama raised the estate tax. No, as soon as the Bush tax cuts expired, which they did on January 1st, the estate tax went to 55%. What Obama did was he cut the estate tax from 55% down to, 30, down to 40%. So what did he do? He extended the great majority of the Bush tax cuts. And now on incomes above $250,000, he also got no concessions. Those tax cuts had already expired, as I've explained over and over again, right? And that's why everybody says, oh, you know, this is the most common excuse for Obama. But Cenk, what could he do? He had no choice. You're only 100% wrong about that. He could have done nothing. For an incredibly rare moment, the laws were set to a progressive advantage. The tax cuts had expired. If you did nothing, all you would have to do the next day is introduce a bill saying, hey, I'd like to give the middle class a tax cut. Now go ahead, Republicans. You're going to vote against that? People like Tom Cole, Republican of Oklahoma, said there's no way in the world we could vote against that. That is the easiest layup in American political history. The Republicans weren't going to block a middle class tax cut. And the tax cuts, for the eighth time now, had already expired. What Obama did was he gave another tax cut now to people, not just under 250000 as he had promised, but up to 450000 What's interesting is that I remember a president telling me 250000 is the number. I mean, J.R., did he repeat that over and over? Now I asked J.R., because he's our producer, who put this clip together. That shows President Obama... And you can judge on your own if he thought that 250000 was the number. I called on Congress to immediately stop the January 1st tax hike from hitting any American on the first $250,000 of their income. And that's why I'm calling on Congress to extend the tax cuts for the 98% of Americans who make less than $250,000. And I can make a firm pledge under my plan, no family making less than $250,000 a year 
will see any form of tax increase. When it comes to the top 2%, what I'm not going to do is to uh, extend further a tax cut for folks who don't need it. But the other 2% of Americans will have to pay a little more on taxes on anything they make over 250000 I'm not going to ask students and seniors and middle-class families to pay down the entire deficit while people like me making over $250,000 aren't asked to pay a dime more in taxes. We all agree that no American should pay more taxes on the first $250,000 of their income. In other words, 97% of small businesses fall under the $250,000 threshold. And I just want to point out, this was a central question during the election. It was debated over and over again. The central point in the election debated over and over again. Something that President Obama said that he would not concede on. That was his line. You just heard him say 250,000 how many times? One, two million times? And what did he do? Of course! He's President Obama. He conceded. And for no reason. So let me give you the details of the plan. So 99% of you get a permanent cut. By the way, the Bush tax cuts were better than this because they were set to expire. That's why we had what we had today, and that's why we had the, uh, the same kind of fight in 2010, because they were set to expire. These are not set to expire. For the rest of the time, people making under 450000 are going to have the Bush tax cuts, which now should be called the Obama tax cuts. And they brag about that as if like, oh, we got you tax cuts. No, 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 you knuckleheads. Tax cuts are a Republican idea. And then we had them under Bush, and they didn't work. The tax cuts do not bring you a better economy. That is not how it works. We had the Clinton era rates during Clinton. We had 23 million jobs created. We did tax cuts under Bush. We lost jobs. So it doesn't work. Stop bragging about it. It's not a progressive idea. Now it gets worse. Capital gains and dividends uh, permanently set at 20% for income above 450000 to 400000 Let's explain that real quick. Now, capital gains went up from 15 to 20. Okay. Now, capital gains have been historically low. It, it was never justified. It's totally unfair, but it is what it is. Okay. I would have brought them to 39.6. We're nowhere near that. But dividends were at 39.6. The tax cuts expired. They were at 39.6. Obama brought them to 20%. Now, dividends, that's like if you have a stock and they pay you a dividend, right? Now, if you work really hard, you're digging ditches, or you're a dentist, or whatever you happen to be, you're going to pay 39.6 if you're lucky enough to get to the top 1% or the top bracket, okay? Now, on the other hand, if you're getting dividend off of income that you've already made, no, you don't have to pay 39.6. You just sit at home, press a couple of buttons, get, and pay 20%. Now, why is that fair? That's totally unfair. But thanks to President Obama and his brilliant negotiations, that's what we have today. But it gets worse. Carried interest? Carried interest is simply the income that private equity and hedge fund managers make. Those are the Wall Street guys. Not all of them, but some of the Wall Street guys. It is not investment income. It is normal income. It's like a dentist does the drilling, he gets paid for it. They do the investment of other people's money, they get paid for it. It's income. But they have a loophole that allows them to pay 20%, thanks to President Obama. That should have been 39.6, but it's not. It's now 20% permanently. Yes, somebody could fix the laws at another time. Oh, good luck trying to get these Republicans, now that the laws are set to their advantage, to do another tax increase when? When? To go after those hedge fund and private equity guys to pay their fair share. That's all we're asking for. Is that going to happen? It's not going to happen. 
because these are the new permanent Obama tax cuts. And we're not done yet. Then we get the estate tax. The estate tax will be set at 40% with a $5 million exemption. Now, what was it? Well, under the Bush plan, it was 35%. As soon as it expired on January 1st, it was 55%. What did Obama do in his great deal where he got the Republicans to concede on taxes, where he broke them? <laughs> he lowered it down to 40%. When the top estates in the country, which does not apply to you unless you are mega wealthy, the exemption is $5 million for a couple, it's $10 million. You can give away $10 million and the estate tax does not apply. It's for every dollar above $10 million for the couple. The mega wealthy. He gave away 15%. You see, but when you do that, then we can't clothe the, the, the poor, we can't feed the hungry, we can't educate the next generation, because that's part of what fuels it. We need money. And it's okay to say, hey, you've done great in this country because of the opportunity that you have received. Can you pay back a little bit? Now they pay back less and less and less because the greedy keep on winning and they have won again. And the guy who agrees with that is the leader of the greedy, Grover Norquist, the leader of Americans for Tax Reform, who went on television and bragged about winning. Look at what he says here. This is actually true. Listen. So how does the physical cliff deal not violate that pledge? It's technically not a violation of the pledge, but I understand why a lot of Republicans have said, look, uh, even though what's happening is the tax cuts disappear and we're restoring them for most people, so we're not raising taxes, we're actually cutting taxes. Because you're saying because the Bush tax cuts have expired yesterday. Yes. So technically just because you basically they expired yesterday so technically these are still tax cuts. Correct. But that's absolutely true. So he's like, "Hey, listen you schmucks, if you'd done nothing, man, the tax increases would have been huge for the rich." And here's the head of the Americans for Tax from the guy that all these politicians signed the pledge to saying they'll never raise taxes, saying, "I just won you idiots you gave me what i wanted in fact he gets a little bit more clear about the scope of his victory in the next clip keep in mind how much of a retreat this is for the modern democratic party the democrats have spent twelve years attacking the two thousand one two thousand three bush tax cuts they all voted against it uh... obama attacked it regularly now they're out there helping to preserve about eighty four percent of those tax cuts uh, and making them permanent. Oops. The only problem with that is that unfortunately he's totally right. It's for 99% of Americans. It preserves 84% of the revenue of those tax cuts, including for the rich. Even if you're a billionaire, you don't have to pay the extra taxes on between 250 and 450. In fact, between zero and 450 let alone the money you save on estate tax, carried interest, dividend, capital gains, and the list goes on and on. Let alone the extra NASCAR break that they got for $70 million and the other goodies thrown in for Goldman Sachs that will give a new tax advantage for them to build their new place in New York. And the list goes on and on. And then they say, oh, no, Cenk, you don't understand. You have to do a deal. You have to compromise. Look at all the wonderful things we got in return. So what were those? Well, the earned income tax credit. The child tax credit, the American Opportunity Tax Credit, and unemployment benefits continue. Uh, now, most progressives would think that those are good things. First of all, on all those tax credits that actually help middle class Americans, they are not permanent. They expire in five years. 
The rest are permanent. That one, we're going to set the rules against you, so they're less likely to be continued. And on unemployment benefits, well, they're, they're permanent, right? Extended for one year. Tax cuts, permanent. Unemployment, one year. C congratulations. What an unbelievable deal for you guys. And by the way, on every single one of those policies that I just listed, as a good things that we quote-unquote won, we could have won easily because when unemployment benefits were cut by the republicans not long ago in 2010 senator bunning did it other republicans turned on him and said what an extreme radical idea senator Cornyn said he's just one senator he does not represent the caucus they voted against bunning 78 to 19 why cutting unemployment benefits in the middle of this tough economy is deeply unpopular if i'm president i let the tax cuts expire and then i go oh you want to fight on unemployment benefits have at it hoss i will get those unemployment benefits and i will bleed you for it it's an easy win. Even the Republicans thought it was an easy win back in 2010. They still think it. They just think, I can't believe how much this guy is giving us. Finally, think about it this way. Remember when all these negotiations began? President Obama said that he wanted $1.6 trillion in extra revenue. Well, the original uh, Boehner offer, when he finally came back with an offer, was, no, I'll give you $800 billion in revenue. What was the final deal? $600 billion in revenue lower than Boehner's original offer. Congratulations. Well played. That's the kind of three-dimensional chess I must not be well versed in. Finally, uh, the White House uh, has uh, let the New York Times know that when progressives criticize them, they say, quote, the criticism has irritated the White House. Oh, I'm so sorry to have irritated you with facts. I won't say anything that I can't take back, that I can't take back, cause I'm a fake, and I can't do this anymore, it's not the first time that I've heard this, it's nothing new and I Just be patient, I don't make this painless I tried to tell you, but you never quite got it Yeah, pushing forward and you knew it needed to stop Just to recap what happened over the last couple of days this I think it's you know quite important that we actually pay attention to what's going on here and, and understand There are people who are running around going, oh yeah the Democrats won, and there are people who are running around going, oh yeah, the Republicans won. And it's not either of them. It's the billionaires who won. The capital gains tax, now if, here, here's just a, 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 you know, kind of a simple setup for this thing. There's two ways you can earn income in the United States. They used to be called earned or unearned income. Now, they don't use the word unearned so much anymore because it sounds kind of un, you know, Frank Luntz wouldn't like that. Uh, so it's called capital gains or dividends or interest, uh, carried interest. But basically, the two ways that you, can, that you can take money and put it in your personal checking account out of a business is you can write yourself, or you can have the business, assuming it's not your own business, the business can write you a paycheck 
which is how most people take their pay, and and virtually all small businesses do. You will hear Republicans say, "Oh, well, you know, you're gonna, you know, if you if you uh, do away with capital gains, you're gonna raise taxes on small businesses." Sorry, I own a small business. I can tell you, I called up my CPA, you know, several years ago and said, "Hey, this capital gains thing is kind of cool. Can I? I own a bunch of stock in my own company. Can I declare a dividend?" And he was like, "No, you can't do that. That's considered tax evasion." So small businesses can't do that. You know, I have to take a paycheck out of my own company, and, and it's taxed at, it's going to be taxed, it would have been, well, it's now going to be taxed 39.6% or whatever it is, you know, this, this the old Clinton tax rate. Actually, it won't be taxed at that much. It'll be taxed because I don't make more than $450,000, but it would it would if I did. So that's the top tax rate for earned income. For unearned income, now this is this is how Mitt Romney makes a living, it's how Paris Hilton makes a living, it's how George W. Bush was making a living when he was born with his trust fund. Basically, people who have what's called passive income, in other words, they're living off their investments. Now, I'm not talking about grandpa who's living off his pension or who's living off a little bit of, you know, a couple thousand bucks a year he's getting from his, from his uh, you know, the, the stock that he bought back when he was a young'un. Because, you know, yes, that's capital gains, but he's making so little. The, the, the tax is a progressive tax, so he's not paying capital gains tax of any consequence. But for the people who are making a million bucks a year or, you know, or hundreds of thousands, over 450000 actually, or $10 million a year, or in the case of a dozen guys on Wall Street, over $1 billion a year, if you make money by the sweat of your brow, if you're a surgeon or a rocket scientist or a, a, a researcher or, you know, fill in the blanks, anything, you pay up to 39.6% income tax. But if you make your money with money, like Mitt Romney did, like Paris Hilton does, you know, with her inheritance, like the Walton heirs do with their inheritance, if you make your money with money, used to be that you paid a maximum 15% income tax. It was called the capital gains rate. By used to be, I mean up until the end of last year, two days ago. And then at the end of the year, midnight, December 31st, that capital gains rate went from 15% all the way up to 39.6%. So all of a sudden, the Koch brothers' income and, and the Waldner's income and, you know, all of the income that they're getting went from a 15% tax rate to an almost 40% tax rate. Bang, just like that. Now, if they were taking it as paychecks, it will still be taxed at that rate if it's over $450,000 a year for a family, 400000 for an individual. But... Most people at that income level don't take it as paychecks. First of all, a company can only deduct the first million dollars in salaries that they pay to any individual. So most companies don't write paychecks for more than a million dollars because it's not tax deductible to the business. So how then, you ask, can CEOs like Stephen J. Hemsley of the uh, Helmsley of the or Hemsley of, of United Healthcare make a billion dollars? A thousand million dollars. How can he? How can he do that in in less than a decade? Well, you know, you pay him in stock, 
And then when they sell the stock, it's called capital gains, and they pay a maximum 15% income tax, which jumped up to 39.6% at the end of the year. And then came along this legislation, which dropped it back down to 20%. And if it's less than $450,000, it's 15%. So guess who won? The real winners were the billionaires. Now, nobody's much talking about that, except, you know, there's a few blogs that you can read that are like blogs for billionaires, you know, where they're, you know, I mean, literally, you know, the, 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 the investors' blogs. And, oh, you know, phew, missed the bullet on that one. So, on the one hand, you've got people who are supportive of Democrats and the president, politically and, you know, in meme memosphere saying, well, it was a great victory. It was the first major tax increase in 20 years. And arguably they're right if the vote had been held before the end of the year. But it wasn't. In fact, even the Senate waited until after midnight for the vote. But it, it doesn't matter. I mean, it's when the House votes that, that it becomes law. So... But because they waited until after the first of the year, which is exactly what I've been predicting for, what, six months now on this program, almost every day, everybody goes, oh, the fiscal cliff over it. I'm like, don't worry. They'll take care of it the day after, you know, January 1st. They'll take care of it. And guess what? They did. Because the day after the end of the year, the Bush tax cuts expired. They were passed by, by reconciliation. In other words, they, they couldn't be filibustered. But... Legislation passed by reconciliation can only last for 10 years. Obama extended them for two years when the Republicans held hostage the, the, the nation and, and uh, actually the nation's uh, unemployed people, unemployment insurance. And so that 12 years, that ran out. So the tax rates went up. Capital gains rate, the, the rate for millionaires, multimillionaires, and billionaires went up to 39.6%. And so in rides the, the House and the Senate, and they cut that back down to 20%. So you could say this is the biggest tax break in history, or not in history, but you know, one of the biggest in modern histories. And that's true, too. I'm inclined to say that the, 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 the winner here is the president and the Democrats because of the optics of it. This is perceived as a tax cut. Excuse me, as a tax increase. This is perceived by the American people as raising taxes on rich people. When in fact what happened was that the top tax rates on rich people, the Bush tax cuts expired, taxes went up, and Congress then came in and said, okay, we're going to keep those top tax rates on people who earn over $450,000 a year, but on unearned income over $450,000 a year, we're going to drop it from 39.6% down to 20%. So Mitt Romney's tax rate actually went up slightly as a result of this. It was 15% last year. It's 20% this year, Paris Hilton's tax rate. But it's still nothing close to what you know surgeons make, or pay, rather. Excuse me. So you get this? But the Republicans are trying to pretend like they got had by the president because they want to play the victim. The Democrats, and you know, to their base, oh, we need, we need, you get more of the out voting for Republicans, so we can, you know, whatever. 
And then you got the Democrats who are trying to claim a victory. And I think, you know, we should just clearly look at what it is. The mission of this show is to aggregate and amplify the best voices of the truly liberal media, and now you can play a critical role in helping fulfill that mission. I pick out the best clips I hear to share with you, and now you can do just the same thing extremely easily. Now available at bestoftheleft.com, each clip I play is made available individually with simple buttons that allow you to share your favorites on your networks through Facebook, Twitter, by email, and beyond. By myself, I can amplify this content to thousands of people, but collectively, we have the potential to reach millions. No kidding. Become your own media activist by taking one minute to share your favorite content a couple of days each week, help more people plug into the truly liberal media, and be an integral part of this extremely virtuous cycle. Thanks so much for your help. The Sunday Morning Yak shows today, somebody tweeted that they were more um, immeasurably intractable and uh, not worth watching than usual. Hard to say. High bar. But um, there was one of them where the uh, host, I think it was on Fox News. Yes, sometimes. Um, where John Roberts, who used to be on CBS and is a Canadian, so there, uh, asked his two guests, one a Republican and one a Democrat, because, you know, we welcome all views. Um, and they're arguing about the debt, ce- you know, the usual crap, the debt ceiling and the thing and the deficit and the thing. And if you're wondering why I call it the usual crap, check out the uh, interview in October with Stephanie Kelton on this broadcast. The transcript is at harryshare.com on the show page. Anyway, he's, they're wrangling and talking over each other and yelling, you know, the lovely stuff that they do because it's Washington. And there ain't no cherry blossoms yet, so they got to do something. And uh, he finally says, John Roberts does, is there anything the two of you agree on? And they said, yes, we got to get this thing solved, this debt and deficit, we got to get it solved. Uh, which was a glaring omission, not noticed by the host of the program, because there's something else that they de- Democrats and Republicans agreed on during the fiscal cliff negotiations, where it all seemed so contentious and diametrical they both agreed on giving tax breaks to certain business certain favored businesses in the fiscal cliff deal you probably have read this now nascar got a break got a tax break the film industry god love them got a tax break to make bigger fake guns i guess um just a nice little list it all went into a bill that was put together by a bipartisan coalition in the Senate way last August, just in case. And then what do you know? It gets folded into the fiscal cliff deal in the last minute. Just ipso facto, presto changeo. So yes, there is something that two parties do agree on, tax breaks for their friends.
Hey, Jay. It's Wade again. And that's Wade, W-A-D-E. My name's not Wayne, but don't worry. You're far from the first person to make that mistake. You know, you were talking about uh, the, the car, well, race car driver, and how you can't drive 100 miles an hour no matter how good you are. And that's all true, but we don't restrict the sale of cars that can go 150 miles an hour either. You, know, you don't have to have a special requirement to, to, to own a Corvette or a Camaro or a Mustang. You can own any of those. You just got to have the money. And you can drive over the speed limit. That speed limit sign it doesn't have any magical powers. It's not going to stop you. But if you get caught doing that, they're going to take your license away from you. The same thing is that if I get caught doing something stupid with my guns, like, I don't know, taking them out in my backyard and just shooting, I live in the suburbs, that's illegal, then they're going to take my guns away from me. I'm going to be charged with a crime. The same way is we already have laws in place that say you can't go up and shoot into a group of people. It's not allowed. Okay, the same way as we have a law that says you can't get in your car drunk and drive it. You can't drive at 150 miles an hour. You can't drive in a, in a dangerous fashion. We already have those laws in place, okay? And they're good laws. So that answers that question. Now, you were asking about reasonable restrictions. Would I agree to it if it, if it saved innocent lives? And, and you're, it's, it's almost, you're kind of trying to trap me with the theoretical. Because if I say, yeah, I agree that a gun bank to work, then it's like, well, there's a, there you go. You agree in restrictions of, of this or that. But the reason why in the real world, why I and, and many gun owners are pretty famous or infamous for, you know, never accepting anything is because we truly believe in the slippery slope. We truly believe in that. That's not something that we're just making up. We're not joking when we say it. And this all stems from the 1994 assault weapons bill that banned the most idiotic things. Things that people didn't even know what were. Like uh, Carolyn McCarthy's famous when she was asked what a barrel shot is. She said it's the shoulder thingy that goes up. She didn't even know what it is. Now, granted, she didn't vote to ban it, but she damn sure supported it. And the only reason she didn't vote to ban it is because she wasn't in Congress at the time. You're not going uh, to... These, these little feel-good legislations, they're not going to do anything. And let's say, okay, let's say we pass a, 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 you know, an assault magazine ban, right? Let's pass it. And then another shooting happens. Well, now here come the anti-gun people. They want more. We got to have more. We got to have more. You know, people are still getting killed. It's still dangerous. We got to have more. And that's how that that whole slippery slope starts, and it never stops. And that's what now, I'm not joking when I say that. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, okay? <laughs> but I truly believe that in my heart of hearts. You know, and I and I don't have time to to, to talk about some of the people. That, that you had of uh, the clips you were playing on the show, but uh, my God, some of those were brutal. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's hard for me not to get angry about it, but at the same time, I know that this is just, a lot of that was just ranting, and, you know, nothing's going to happen. I especially love the one where we, we were supposed to provide a need for having a gun, you know. Yeah, that, that's good. Where do you want to, you want to open that door for rights? That's, that's a good idea. But if you want me to call back and tell you why I think I need assault weapons and high-capacity magazines and all that, I'll be glad to do it, but that's not really the part of, of the point, excuse me, of this uh, call. But anyway, Jay, um, that's all I had, man. I hope uh, I hope that the connection's better, and uh, I will uh, talk to you later.
Hi, Jay. This is Mara from Pittsburgh. And I wanted to call in with a response to Wayne from Texas. First, let me be up front. I'm a former hunter and a former member of the NRA. I don't hunt anymore just because I choose to do other things with my free time now. And I'm not a member of the NRA anymore because I don't think they represent the interests and wishes of actual gun owners. So this is just to say that I don't hate guns and I'm not opposed to people owning guns in general. However, I get really upset by the lack of objectivity and logic that self-proclaimed gun nuts demonstrate when it comes to talking about reasonable restrictions on gun purchases and ownership. As you rightly pointed out, Jay, the argument Wayne gave that since his guns weren't involved in a crime, he shouldn't be subject to any restrictions is nonsensical. Wayne's claim that gun restrictions enacted in the wake of a mass shooting is a punishment on him for a crime he didn't commit completely convolutes the issue. So going off of your example, for in the wake of thousands of deaths from car accidents, laws to require seatbelts aren't a punishment for everyone who hasn't been involved in an accident. Rather, it's a considered judgment by the people that everyone would benefit from being required to wear seatbelts. There are plenty of cases in which we willingly submit to restrictions on everyone to prevent harms to the general population. And these are not punishments. They are reasoned responses to the facts of the world. Wayne brought up the fact that you are more likely to die in a car accident on the way to the mall or school than you are to die from gun violence while there. And that's true. However, you're a lot less likely to die in a car accident now than you ever have been before because of the restrictions on how cars are made, who can drive, and how they can drive. Also, you are much more likely to die in a car accident than in almost any other kind of activity you participate in. But that doesn't mean we should ignore opportunities to make these other activities as safe as possible. Someone might, like Wayne might respond by saying that driving and gun ownership are different because driving is privilege and gun ownership is a right without getting into the merits of a, that kind of interpretation of the Second Amendment. The response is that free speech in general is a right as well, but we also agree to some restrictions on free speech to keep everyone safe. Another point is that contrary to what Wayne claimed, there are people, in fact, who walk around this country in fear. There are a lot of them, actually. Just talk to the mayor of Homewood here next to Pittsburgh. Maybe Wayne lives in a rural area with little gun violence, but anyone in the city knows that there are more or less dangerous parts of the city. And if you do not fear gun violence, you're either naive or deluded. Also, a point on the slippery slope argument. Wayne asks, where does it end? In which, which is an oblique way of arguing that if we ban some types of guns, we will inevitably end up banning all kinds of guns. The reason that this argument is generally dressed up as a rhetorical question is that when carefully spelled out, it is so obviously fallacious. We draw lines like this all the time, like for voting and drinking ages. We ban people under 18 from voting, voting but that doesn't mean that we will eventually ban everyone from voting. Finally, a little about one of my personal pet peeves, which is doing one's research. First, Wayne should actually read any proposed legislation to find out what it really says. The bill Diane Feinstein is talking about would not retroactively ban assault weapons, it would place a ban going forward. In addition, most restrictions on buying guns are not retroactive, and none of these laws means that government agents will be going from house to house confiscating guns. That's just fear-mongering. Second, I believe in science. 
and there have been natural experiments going on around the world concerning the relationship between gun ownership and gun violence for decades, if not centuries. And it is crystal clear that everywhere, even in America, tighter restrictions on guns means less gun violence. Look it up. Wayne may be doing everything right, but some deranged person could still come into his house, kill him, and steal his guns. And if Wayne didn't have any assault weapons, then the guy who killed him for his guns wouldn't either. Thanks, Jay, for everything you do. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. So first of all, apologies to Wade for mistaking his name when I did. You know, I, I caught the mistake before I wrote the show notes, so I fixed it there, but obviously didn't catch it in time uh, before I recorded for the show. So apologies on that. But in response to Wade's comment today about being willing to call in and explain why he feels the need to own as many guns as he does... Based on a few other uh, voicemails that I received and my own personal feelings on the matter, uh, I think there are a lot of people who would be interested in, in hearing that because, myself included, there are a lot of people who have no idea why people who really love guns and really feel the need to own them have that feeling. They, they, I certainly don't have the feeling myself. I can't even imagine having the feeling. And, uh, and so that would be an interesting insight to get if Wade wanted to call back in and give that. Uh, finally today, of course, the most important note of the day is that uh, the big news of the week is that there was a big progressive sweep at the podcast awards. The Young Turks won their category for the best video podcast. The Majority Report won their category for the uh, best news and politics podcast. Throwing Shade, also featured on Best of Left, won their category for best GLBT show. And then, of course, Best of the Left won for best produced. And, uh, I tried to record my acceptance speech. You know the uh, the awards this year. They, they got they got big time. Uh, they partnered with the New Media Expo uh, conference that was happening, and they actually paid to have me fly out. Same with the Majority Report and uh, the Young Turks paid for all of us to come and actually accept our awards. And I tried to record my speech so I, I could play it here. Uh, just to make the point of what I said, but I had my phone in my pocket, I was recording, and it ended up uh, all uh, staticky and uh, uh, not really playable on the air. But the, the main point that I wanted to make was that, you know, I thanked all of the uh, contributors to the show. You know, of course, this show is nothing without uh, all of the other shows that make it possible that, that support my mission to, uh, you know, get their good content out there and let me do that. So I thanked them uh, primarily and, then of course, thanked everyone who, uh, you know, voted for the show and supports the show and so on. So I'll say that here. Thanks to everyone who voted, not just for my show, but for all the shows that I was uh, supporting in the podcast awards. It worked. So that's it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to everyone who supports the show uh, directly, of course, by becoming a member or making one-time donations to the program. That is absolutely how the show survives. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Bought a picture that wasn't right Pitch burning on a shining sheet 
I'm not.